Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. All of these acts have been deliberately timed to affect the result of the general election. Of course I'm disappointed. We have to get our supporters out to vote in June. I voted Leave, yep. and I'm proud to have voted Leave, and I knew what I was voting But I will not take anything for granted, and neither will the team I lead. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman Deep Dive. Since last we met, Theresa May has declared war on Europe... She has accused its leader, Jean-Claude Juncker, of attempting to influence the British election by talking to a journalist, something she avoids whenever possible, out of simple respect for the voters. Jeremy Corbyn responded by criticising the Prime Minister for wrapping herself in the Union Jack, which is like accusing her of wanting to win the election. And in fact, both flag-waving and election-winning are probably of similarly dubious moral status as far as Jeremy is concerned. I'm Ian Leslie, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. Stuart, what nationality is Jean-Claude Juncker? I believe he's from Luxembourg. Yeah, I knew that you'd know this. Luxembourgeois. Luxembourgeois. Um, We can't say that she didn't warn us. When Theresa May announced this election, she said that she wanted to make it about Brexit. And by God, she is going to make it so, even if she has to sound like that guy who accosted Tim Farron last week in uh actually i don't know where it is i feel a bit like theresa may in in that town a particular town yeah oxfordshire Uh, oxfordshire somewhere in oxfordshire which brings us to this week's topic is brexit just an issue in this election or is it the new defining divide in british politics Instead of politics being about working class versus boss class, socially liberal versus conservative, Labour versus Tory, is it now all about remain and leave? How deep does the remainer-leaver divide go? Here to discuss that with us today is James Morris, a senior director at Edelman and an expert on public opinion. Hello, James. Hi, Ian. James worked on Ed Miliband's team with none other than Lord Wood of Anfield, although sadly he didn't get a peerage. James is an extremely (laughs) knowledgeable and perceptive analyst of British politics. He has a command of the data on how people vote and also a grasp of the underlying attitudes that inform their choices, which he gains in part from running focus groups. Um, And I'm just going to say a word here, which I know that lots of people think of focus groups as vaguely sinister. It basically means getting some voters in a room and listening to what they have to say. 
I know, madness. In fact, you did a, a focus group last night, I believe. Yep, I was in Birmingham last night talking to uh, first one group of Remain voters and then a group of Leave voters about the election, um, all from Labour-held seats, the Tories or the Liberal Democrats are hoping they might make headway into and finding out what they cared about, what they had noticed, what um, what was driving their vote. Right, so we are going to get into that in a minute. Um, just before we do so, I'd like to spend uh, just a minute on the election itself Stuart, what do you think of it so far? Well, it's a really odd election campaign. For, for one thing, you've got the four, four, at least four different parties with four different kinds of campaign. You've got a Brexit campaign with a character issue leading for the Conservatives with Theresa May, a, pres- a presidential contest about Brexit, essentially. Then you've got the Liberal Democrats, who have become a one-issue party for this election, which is fighting against Brexit. Then you've got the Labour Party, which seems to be trying to ignore the Brexit issue completely and wants to fight a traditional left-wing or left campaign on public services and redistribution and equality. And then you've got the SNP want to make it about Scotland versus London and independence. So each party has its own comfort zone issue. I suspect the Tories have got the issue that most people think the election is actually about, um, which is a problem for the others. But the, the longer-term thing that's really interesting about this election is, is this the first of a different kind of election, or is this just a blip? Is it like a 1931 election, which is going to be about a national crisis or a national issue? James Callaghan talked about sea change in 1979, a kind of great turning point. And every leader at an election likes to think it's it's the most important election of their lives or a seismic change election, but it, it rarely is. It could be that this is the first of a very different kind of election. And we know from the Brexit referendum, from the Trump election and from elections on on the continent of Europe, that consistently new kinds of issues other than class are doing the causing of voting now in a way they weren't before. In particular, age. There's huge segmentation of our electorate now on age, levels of education, geography as well. And the question is, is class voting dying or um, is this just a blip? Is this just about the Brexit moment? And are we going back to class voting with, you know, in the next five or 10 years? And that's, I guess that's a question for you, James. I mean, how, how unique is this? Is, is, is it a one-off election or is this the beginning of a, a different kind of electorate emerging in our country? The election's not about issues and elections are very, very rarely about issues. Um, the election, this election, like most elections, is really about competence and who is capable. And the role of issues is as a kind of clue and a, as to who might be capable and a thing for the media to talk about. Um, and that's true pretty consistently. So at the last election, you know, a surface level, you might say it was about spending and about welfare and immigration policy, but really it was about who looks up to the job. Um, and so in that sense, this election is pretty similar to the last one, which is that fundamentally what voters are thinking is, who do I think is going to screw it up the least? Because they're not very optimistic, so it's not who's <laughs> going to be really good. It, it, in the focus group last night, one person said, he's a complete dope, she's only a bit of a dope, so I'll go for the bit of a dope. Um, and that, that is that is very telling. That's the lens, right? Bringing Politics. endorsement, yeah. Um, and then underneath that, yeah, there are. It is true that um, there is no longer a class skew in voting patterns. So it used to be that working class people were much more likely to vote Labour, and middle class people much more likely to vote Tory. Now the class profile of the Labour vote is flat. So whatever class you are, you're equally likely to vote Labour, which is not very likely. About twenty five percent of the total population, a bit less. Um, and so there is stuff going on that is changing the class character of the vote, um, the geographic spread of the vote, and those sorts of things. And there, there are some deep drivers of that. But the issue is not the, it's not the issue. But you don't think people 
So, so you're saying people don't really care about remain or leave. I mean, uh, okay, let's test that a little bit. I mean, if you, if you, um, well, I know Malcolm who <laughs> assaulted Tim Farron, probably not representative, but is there, is there not a significant strain of, of that kind of, uh, that passion in, in, uh, in the electorate at large at the moment? This, this feeling that, look, come on, we've taken a vote on this. Let's get out. It's time to free ourselves from, from the yoke of uh, the EU. Uh, yes, leave voters are more motivated by the issue than remain voters. So if you want to find people who are actually ideologically committed to their position, you're actually much more likely to find people like Malcolm than to find sort of committed cosmopolitan liberals, although there are some of both. Um, but the thing I'd like that, to say I'm a committed cosmopolitan uh, liberal. Uh, I hope so. Uh, but the thing that um, is that drives a lot of that, the actual value, is a kind of sense of community, patriotism, loyalty. It's those kinds of words, not a view about what is the appropriate legal framework for the interaction of the British government with the German government in the context of the German government being bound into a union of 27. Like, no one cares about that. That's not intrinsically important. And that's different to health education, where the actual issue is something that people intrinsically care about. The role of Europe is just an instrumental mechanism for most people, and there's something else that sits underneath it that is actually the motivating force. And that's why before the referendum... Only about seven or eight percent of people said Europe was a top issue facing the country, where health, education, and so on, are much, much higher up. Before, it's not before the the general election is, was called, or before the referendum. Before the referendum. Before the referendum. But, yeah, actually, I, I do remember seeing a graph of how much you care about the EU, and it's very, very, very flat. And then yeah. suddenly the referendum comes, and everybody's like, "Oh yes, well, I've got a very strong point of view about this." Right. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about this election is you've got Tony Blair and Gina Miller, who, in different ways, are basically trying to focus the anti. Um, the pro-Remain vote tactically into whatever candidate is going to stand up to Theresa May. By your by your logic, that's a complete waste of time. That's not how voters think. Is that right? Um, yes, that's a complete waste of time. Get off the that's fence, James. Tell me what you really think. <laughs> um, I mean, they will, they will make incredibly small differences, mainly to lost causes. So they'll lost cause or lose by a little bit less than it otherwise would have. That, that's what will happen because the vast majority of voters in those seats are not strongly motivated by wanting to reverse the Brexit decision. In fact, the vast majority of voters in the country say, we had the referendum, um, now let's work out what Brexit looks like. And actually Blair and Miller, I think, are in slightly different positions. I think Gina Miller is much, although she sort of twos and pros a little bit, is, is her message is basically, this is wrong, let's go back. Blair's is different. Blair's is saying, because I tested it in the focus group last night, um, I was setting out a really common sense British opinion, which is let's see what they offer and then decide. Um, and he's got this brilliant analogy. I haven't heard him use it recently, but we tested it last night, which was if you're, uh, this is like buying a house without ever going to see it. That would be a stupid thing to do. We've decided we want to move there. We've decided where we want to move. Now let's see what the house is like and then decide to buy it. And that is, that's a different thing. That is like pitch rolling for somewhere we might be in mm-hmm. two years' time. That's not like a tactical voting message. How did the focus groups respond to the Blair, uh, it was, to that Blair message? As long as you don't mention Tony Blair. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> that's right. I mean, they, they were like, they, there's, there's a, you could talk about this for ages, but there is a, there's a hole for someone who can communicate really clearly. And so the message was, that is a really clear analogy they understood and they liked both the, you know, in the Remain group, they were, um, they were like, yeah, that's what I think. Uh, which is different from people saying we must have a second referendum or we must reverse it or we must take him to court or whatever. And in the Leave vote, people were like, half of them were like, that sounds like common sense. 
and the other half were like the guy who accosted Tim Farron, who's like, you know, he's unpatriotic and so on. Then there's a the detail of how Blair's brand mm. affects and infects it all. That's separate. Yeah. So if the Gina Miller strategy is bound not to bear any fruit, what about the Lib Dem strategy of essentially saying, vote for us if you want to revisit the referendum result? Is that also likely to not bear any fruit? Uh, they've run away from that a little bit, right? So in, in particularly in the West Country, they're running local campaigns. I'm the person who'll sort out the flood defences yeah. or whatever. They're fighting very different battles in the West Country versus in um, Islington and Wood Green or in places like that. Um, the, the reason why they might potentially have some opportunity is the fundamental weakness of the Labour vote that makes a lot... It's not because Remain is really motivating, it's because there's a lot of people who have been habitual Labour voters who are now like, oh, I don't really feel like I can endorse that. And so there's a rational okay. reason to go elsewhere. Okay, before before we get too much into the detail of this election, I just want to go back to this Remain Leave question because um, are you saying I don't think you are? I'm going to caricature your position for a minute. Are you saying that actually, in effect, the referendum was not about anything at all? It was uh, it just people just sort of picked a side, um, and we pretended it was all about our relationship with the EU, but it was about something else. Uh, or, I mean, it, it wasn't a sort of random walk, was it? The people divided into right. that's fairly homogenous kind of camps. Um, I think. There are two elements to answer that. One is, no, it definitely wasn't a random walk. But if you look at the things that correlate strongly with voting leave, they have nothing to do with voting leave. Mm. So if you support the death penalty, there's roughly a 75% chance you voted leave. And if you oppose it, it's roughly 15%. Gay that, marriage as well, I think, isn't it? The yeah, same thing. Yeah. Mm. I think that, that is amazing. Um, I mean, that's, that's an incredibly high... In fact, there is a theory inside the Conservative Party that Cameron called the referendum as a way of appeasing people who were really upset about his position, his liberal position on gay marriage a few weeks or months before, as a way of buying them off. So I think these things could be related, even in the minds of politicians, I think they're related, yeah, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, a per- that's personality driving your vote. It's not, it's not a, like a sort of ratiocinative view about what is the optimal relationship for trade and how do I... It, you only get the word ratiocinative on the... I can't even say it, on the deep dive. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, OK, so... Uh, all right, but when you say it's about personality, what does that mean? Because, that, I mean, that it sounds to me like it's about attitudes or values or something a, li- a little bit deeper than whether I'm a yeah extrovert or not. Yeah, a, a lot of it is about um, whether people feel... whether they are instinctively closed or open. So that is a that is one of the big personality traits. Oh, wow. Drivers. So it literally is a personality trait. As, as an individual personality trait, yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow. Um, and you could see it in the focus groups we did last night. So they were both, both groups were working class, uh, people from Birmingham, sort of 25 to 40, something like that. In both groups, there were guys who were tradesmen, ran small businesses, employed other builders, plumbers and so on. Um, the Remain voting tradesman was saying... These, you know, the workers come over here, they're incredibly helpful, they're useful, they work really hard, I've got no problem with it at all, you know, it's great, and blah, blah, blah. And on the leave side, the guy who was demographically identical was way more closed to working to people who don't speak the language, you can't communicate with them on the site, blah, blah, blah. Those issues probably present themselves pretty similarly on the work site for both of them, but it's their attitude that is shaping their view on work, and it's the attitude that shapes their view... Okay, but but maybe they just have different political views. I mean, how do you know it's a personality? Wouldn't you have to give them a personality test in order to establish whether or not it's a yeah you would a, you, a trait you would, and that's what a lot of academic kind of there studies have, have done. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, and if you look at stuff like 
people like Eric Kaufman, uh, yeah, Eric Kaufman and um, Jonathan Haidt. There's like a there's a growing literature on that, and that is that is different to the class based politics of the that we. So, used how to does have. that help you as a politician, or you know, how, how should that change the way you think about politics? Um, so, I think that it if you if you think of issues as ciphers as like clues about uh, uh, ways of giving people clues about what you are like and what values you endorse um that is that in some ways gives you more freedom to pick whatever position you want on the issue based on the substance and then to try and make the argument for it in a way that touches what people think so if you take control for example right control is a concept and a, a phrase that appeals really strongly to people who are more psychologically closed so if I want to argue for greater immigration, I have to say um, it's really that what we want is control of who comes in and out of our borders. We need to make sure we have control so that we are able to have the skills we need in our country. If I look at the NHS, I know we need uh, people who come in here and I want to make sure that I can control that flow so they can fill in the jobs we want. That's nothing wrong with that. I'm arguing for, this, for an open position, but in a closed language way. So, it, so a lot of it is like rhetorical frameworks, language, and how you key into emotional words that resonate with people rather than thinking about what the position. And it actually gives you a lot more freedom to think substantively about what the right thing is, and then separately from a communications point of view, how do I pitch it? So, but the, okay, the nerdy political scientist in me is bristling a bit at this, because on the one hand, you say that elections are essentially about issues that are ciphers for questions of character in the leadership. I mean, the sort of presidential yeah. and issues become transmission belts for how we think about the character of the people who are going to be our prime minister or want to be our prime minister. But then we also know that there's big changes possibly happening in the electorate in terms of the cleavages, as they're called, that structure how people vote, whether it's class, or whether it's age, or whether it's education. I mean, what's the relationship between these two things yeah. then? How, how is it that elections are essentially character contests on the one hand, but also about the shifting demographics and characteristics of our country on the other hand. So I think a few things. One is uh, the vast majority of analysis about how people vote exaggerates the differences and divides between people. Um, so if you look at maps of the country, for example, where the rural areas are shaded leave and the urban areas are shaded remain, that is, that's just taking like the majority in each place. If you look underneath it, what's going on, there are 335 local authorities in this country in 282 of them, the result was 50-something, 40-something, one way or another. Individual places are much more internally divided than they're, the way they're represented. But as a country as a whole, most places are a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, so it is, you, you, you can, and if you look at the issues like whether foreign nationals who are here, EU nationals should stay, 80% of Remain voters say that they should stay, it's 77% of Leave voters. So the, the, those views don't map onto the voting pattern in the way they would if you thought this was a very kind of rational mm. kind of approach. There's also a set of big social trends that are break. Class voting is like a habit, right, which is my dad or my mum always voted Labour, I will. And I don't even, I'm not even going to engage in thought about who to vote for. And that habit has broken down as partly it's a deliberate political strategy from the Labour Party here, which was to move which was to deliberately try and reach out of its class base, which wasn't big enough to win. Um, and that has weakened its bonds with the more working class. And it's partly social media and technology and the proliferation of TV channels and the decline of like um, 
the way communities have become less homogenous where you live and all these things are like shaped that it's like shaking things so that stuff comes loose and as it comes loose it starts sorting more along personality lines and less along class lines so you think personality politics is sort of replacing class politics yeah yeah i think that's right i think people as your as your habitual bonds break yeah, short sorting like okay. that. Okay, but which I, I and I think when you, we're talking about personality politics, it's slightly different from the personality of the leaders, which obviously hugely important. But you're already talking about it's the personality of, of voters being being central to to how they vote. I mean, it does really raise a really interesting question about political strategy, then, right? Um, and my hypothesis would be that if you are um, on 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 one side of the kind of um, left or right wing divide, you should make your case in a way that appeals to the other side. Um, so uh, it, because you, you'll get the people on your side with the substance, and, and but you'll kind of get the tone of voice which appeals to. The, I, I'm just to go back to Tony Blair for a minute. I can't help myself. Go on, um, Ian. He, <laughs> I remember him saying something a couple of years ago, or a few. I think maybe in his last year as Labour leader, even something like that, quite a few years ago, uh, which is something like. Um, in this country, we respect and, and value people, whatever religion that, that they worship. We, we believe in, in freedom and, and tolerance. And if you don't like that, don't come here. <laughs> I thought, actually, that is, that's a brilliant kind of way of framing uh, a liberal position on, on immigration or what, whatever it is. You know, it sounds kind of like bulldogish and kind of don't come here if you don't like it. It's actually kind of saying standing up for, for a liberal position. Um, so I think that kind of model of, you know, think about the people who are have different, you know, personality type from the people who are more likely to be on your side and think about what kind of language that they and that sentiment they will respond to doesn't mean you have to actually compromise on your on your positions necessarily. Is the, is the challenge of politicians, I mean, some politicians think their job is to, is to make certain issues the issue of the day. I mean, with Ed Miliband, we tried to do that and we didn't work. I don't know if you spotted it, but it didn't work um, on the change in the kind of economy we had. But... I guess one of the things listening to you, James, that I think about is is that maybe politicians shouldn't be in the business of saying, no, this issue is the most important issue facing us, not that issue. Because the moral of the story from your point of view is you should take whatever issues are top of the list in the moment you find yourself in and work out how to how how you can refract that into making you look good as a leader. So I don't think that is quite right because parties have brands. And so, for example, the Labour Party at the moment and its sort of historic weakness is not trusted with money. So if um, spending is at the top of the issue tree, it's going to have a problem because every time it says um, we need to spend more on that, people hear we need to borrow more and it's a problem. So um, you you need to, insofar as you can, push the news agenda towards areas where you're stronger, that's going to be in your interest. So you want someone going into the... A voting booth, thinking of the NHS through the lens of patients and how many doctors and nurses there are, rather than money and how much money there is in it. And you definitely want them, don't want them going in thinking through the lens of deficit and debt. But then issues do matter. But only as clues to what kind of approach you have. I mean, they do matter. I'm not saying I'm not saying that like it really doesn't matter what your position is because, um, particularly if you have a relatively extreme position, it's going to start mattering more, right? So if you if your position is um, unilateral nuclear disarmament or uh, imminent total nuclear war, your position is going to matter a lot. But if your position is, well, let's okay, just have... Trump. <laughs> if your position is, let's just sort of roughly have the same as we had before, th- your position doesn't matter. Um, so where you are, the further you get to an extreme, the more likely it is to matter. That is, that is true. 
I mean, Theresa May seems to have been listening to you on this because jumping on the Juncker briefing about the dinner and turning it into, I mean, from my point of view, you know, a kind of Corporal Jones style, you know, overreaction. I mean, but from the point of view of a lot of voters, it it says something about her and that's presumably job done as far as she's concerned. Yeah, well, it says something about her and it says something about Jeremy Corbyn. So in the groups last night, the Leave voters, we showed them the clip, right? We showed them the clip of her outside Downing Street and the Leave voters were like, yeah, stick it to them basically. The Remain voters were like, that is scary. Um, and the, uh, one of them said, it's a bit like watching Homeland. Um, and then I said, okay, so um, how does that affect your vote? Who does that make you think you want to take on that challenge? And the Remain voters were saying, well, I don't think Jeremy, Cor- Jeremy Corbyn knows less about this than I do, was what one person said. So it is, so she, she's doing exactly this, right? She's taking the... She, that was nothing to do. That was probably counterproductive with respect to the negotiation with Europe. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> I think you might have a point there. <laughs> but that starts on June the 9th, right? That problem is, is tomorrow's problem and the next three years' problem, but it's, it's not today's problem yeah. for her. And it sets strength up as the test of the election. Wow. And what would you say, if you were rising Jeremy Corbyn now, what would you say, what would be the one bit of advice you give him about, I mean, look, the odds are against him, whatever one thinks about Jeremy Corbyn, but what would you say is his best chance of doing well? So I think actually they're not doing a bad job in terms of their electoral strategy. Like whether you'd start from here is a different question, but um, what we're hearing in the focus groups is voters bond with the Labour Party loosening massively. I've never, con- I've always voted Labour. My family's always voted Labour for the first time I'm thinking about not, which is what we heard in Scotland, you know, before yeah. uh, the, the tsunami there. So um, he's got to do something to try and bring those people back. Otherwise, Labour will, will not even get the 30%-ish that it got last time. So... His like many versus few basic framework is a way of rebuilding some of those labour bonds. That's quite helpful. Secondly, where did he get that from? It's been around, I think. <laughs> um, yep. Secondly, he is um, trying to drag it to a more to drag the issue away from Brexit to domestic public services and so on. Um, not because that help. The reason that helps him is that it makes strength a bit less important than it otherwise would be. And it also means his own party doesn't disagree with itself all the time. So I think actually they're doing that. They're not doing badly on those two fronts. Okay, what he really needs to do is run a kind of Myers-Briggs test on the whole population and, and, and then uh, Facebook target everyone on the, on, on the other side. Um, join the deep dive for a, a discussion of Brexit and you get a whole new theory of how politics works. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, James Morris. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So we like to do a rent or rave uh, here on the deep dive. I spent a couple of minutes on something that has either enthused us, in which case we'll, we'll rave about it, or really got our goats, in which case we'll, we'll rant. Um, Stuart, I believe you have something to rant about this week. Well, some people say I would say this, wouldn't, wouldn't I? Because I was involved in the 2010 election when Gordon Brown lost and the 2015 election when Ed Miliband lost. So I'm no fan of election campaigns as someone who was there when the bacon sandwich was being eaten and when the Ed Stone was being unveiled and all that. But there's something about election campaigns that I find quite dismal. Of course, there are extraordinarily fantastic things about our country, but it's the language that's used that I find so, so depressing. Um, it's the one time when politicians are allowed to almost be overtly patronising about the electorate. It's the one time when everyone is instructed to say the same words again and again and again, because only when people are really fed up of hearing things do they finally get through. And the language that's used is invariably the same. It's tax bombshell. Why don't it say tax bomb, by the way, rather than bombshell? I don't know. But bombshell is, is going to be heard I mean, dozens of times in the next few weeks on either side. Strong and stable is obviously the one. Co- coalition of chaos. We're going to have, I'm sure, Labour ones to try and throw back at the Tories as well. Cats coming out of the bag, left, right and centre. And then the same old rituals about embarrassment on radio, Solent or whatever it might be, um, when someone doesn't know the price of a piece of fish or... Uh, These things are just part of the rituals of how campaigns get covered. And I'm sure that they're fantastic for embarrassments and fantastic because journalists, you know, get stories every day. But I mean, for goodness sake, it's like, can't we do elections in a different way? Well, I'd like to actually put in a word for um, embarrassments, unscripted embarrassments. Um, I really enjoyed the Tim Farron-Malcolm exchange. I thought um, uh, Tim Farron came out of it very well, actually um, uh, stayed calm, kept a smile on his face um, uh, and didn't leave his mic on as he, as he walked away. You're very, you're very trusting of politicians, which is almost today. admirable. <laughs> Happy birthday! 65. Oh, bless you. So I'm now a pensioner. Well, you are. So and if you do but, you know, what, what sort of gets me down a little bit about, about this campaign is that there is there are less uh, unscripted encounters of of any kind, um, and the politicians just think it's okay to just sort of float above uh, the, the voters now and sort of beam down these 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 giant slogans without actually interacting with human beings. But one of the main reasons that that's true, and I agree, that's what politicians are doing. They're p- building a wall between them and the media, let alone the public. It's precisely because of the currency that the minor embarrassments have. Because journalists, not just journalists, not blaming journalists, but there's this industry that you can jump, blame journalists. Oh, this industry that jumps on little faux pas because they're just desperate for something different to the press releases that are getting banged out by a central office every day. And I just think that, you know, if we want our politicians to be authentic and human, you can't both have that and have this sort of industry capitalising on gaffes in the way that it happens. Although maybe it is asking a little bit too much of Theresa May to lead that. Authentic and human. I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. On that bombshell, (laughs) we will end the deep dive. Thank you for listening. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.